in the dark and I kick my toe on the toy box, my first reaction is, who left that there? But then when I turn on the light, it's not a toy box at all, it's my toolbox. But of course, I think, who left that there? Now, um, Bill Bryson notices uh, that, that people like to blame others when he talks about Americans suing each other. And this is from one of his books. Allied with the idea that lawsuits are a quick way to a fortune is the interesting and uniquely American notion that no matter what happens, someone else must be responsible. So if, say, you smoke 80 cigarettes a day for 50 years and eventually get cancer, then it must be everyone else's fault but your own. So you sue not only the manufacturer of your cigarettes, but the wholesaler, the retailer, the haulage firm that delivered the cigarettes, and so on. And Bill Bryson goes on to talk about all these crazy cases in America of people suing each other. Now, Bill Bryson makes some good observations, but I don't think it's uniquely American, as he claims. It's a human trait, isn't it? Ever since Adam pointed the finger at Eve to shift the blame in the Garden of Eden, it must be someone else's fault. I wonder how God feels when we don't take responsibility for our own actions. I wonder how God feels when people hear his word but then make excuses about why they don't live it out. Now, I know that's uncomfortable, but today we're starting a new series in the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, if you've started reading this week, you'll notice it's an uncomfortable book. It's all about God's judgment. The message of Ezekiel is God does not speak to be ignored. God speaks to be listened to. And whether people listen or whether people don't listen, well, they'll know that he's God. A uh, little while ago in our family, it's all over now, the kids were going through a bit of a rebellious stage when it was teeth cleaning time. And so the little way we found around it was, when it came time to clean teeth, I would say, do you want to do it the easy way or the hard way? And the easy way is they say, yes, Daddy, you can clean my teeth, and I clean them. The hard way is they say, no, and I forced them to clean their teeth. And it only took one or two times and they worked out it's better off choosing the easy way. God is saying, and the phrase comes through again and again, whether you people listen or whether you don't listen, you will know that I'm God. In other words, whether you choose to take the easy way, repent, be forgiven, or whether you take the hard way, ignore me and come under my judgment, whether you're here or whether you fail to respond, you will know that I am God. Well, we're going to be spending the next nine weeks looking at the book of Ezekiel. Uh, so I thought it would be good today to set the scene. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 1 starts with a date and a place. Now, I'm hopeless with dates and times and I'm hopeless with places, but Ezekiel has it here in the first verse, so it must be important when this is happening and where it's happening. So let's look firstly at when, when it's happening. About 700 years before Jesus, just off the edge of this timeline. Okay, just off the edge. Israel had a very close call. Most of the Israelites had been taken off to Assyria 
who was a, a powerful country, and the king of Assyria sends his army to Jerusalem and they are just about to wipe out Israel. But King Hezekiah um, asks God for mercy and God rescues them. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 18. The um, Assyrian army retreats. Well, Israel have two more kings. There's a bad one. There's a good one. And then in 2 Kings 24, exactly the same thing happens again. This time it's Babylon. They come, they take the Israelites, King Nebuchadnezzar, off to Babylon. That's like Daniel in Babylon and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in Babylon. And then in the next chapter of 2 Kings, that one there, chapter 25, Nebuchadnezzar brings his army all the way to Jerusalem. And the question is, what will happen to Israel this time? Will God rescue them again? Or will he not? And that's where Ezekiel's written. He is written right there in the middle, five years into the exile to Babylon. That's the when, okay? It's not a good time in Israel's history. They're they're under the judgment of God. What about the where? Well, uh, he is at the Kabar River, which is in Babylon. In other words, Ezekiel is one of the ones who was taken off to Babylon a thousand miles from Jerusalem and he's sitting under the judgment of God. And by the time this book is written, Ezekiel has been there five years. Five years apart from God. Five years without the temple. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, which we're looking at this morning, God comes to Babylon with a message for his people. He hasn't forgotten them. Have a look with me at Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 2. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. And here's the vision. Verse 4. As I looked, I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. In the fire was looked like four living creatures. And so it goes on for the whole of chapter 1. See, one summer's day in Babylon, Ezekiel is sitting by the river and from the north, a huge storm blows in. But as the storm gets closer, he says, this is not just an electrical storm. Inside the cloud, inside the lightning, there's these four strange but powerful creatures with four heads and wings and arms and wheels turning around and eyes everywhere. Uh, And look at verse 13. The whole thing is just so bright. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fires moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. It's an impressive picture. I'm not sure what you call the person who does the special effects, but forget Star Wars, forget Lord of the Rings. If you could get this movie, this would be a special effects person's dream. But as impressive as it all is, with all that movement and all that light, Ezekiel notices something else. Ezekiel's gaze is drawn upward. And up there, 
on top of the creatures. Ezekiel sees something that he describes as the likeness of the glory of God. And as exciting as the creatures were, when Ezekiel sees this, what does he do? Well, we heard from Owen, didn't we? Verse 28. Like the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. When Ezekiel sees this, he falls flat on his face. Now we've already heard that Ezekiel was a priest. So in other words, five years ago when he was back in Jerusalem, he would have been working in the temple where God dwelt. But he would have never seen the glory of the Lord. Apart from Isaiah, the last time anyone saw the glory of the Lord was 300 years ago when the temple was built and opened under King Solomon. God rarely appears in all his glory in the Old Testament and yet here he is appearing to Ezekiel a thousand miles from Jerusalem to a place where the people are under God's judgment. What's going on here? God must have something very big to say to the exiles in Babylon. He hasn't just sent an angel to deliver this message. God is delivering this message in person. This is not a message to be ignored. This is not some junk mail. I wonder what God has to say. I wonder what kind of message God is bringing to his people in Babylon who have been under his judgment for five years. Will it be good news? Five years is long enough. It's time to come home. The exile's over. Come back to Jerusalem. Well, let's have a listen to what the message is. Uh, follow on in your Bibles from Ezekiel chapter 2, and I'm going to play it off a CD. Okay, did you pick up what that message was about? See, it, it wasn't a message of, welcome home Israel, time to come back, was it? God is not ready to bring his people home. This is a message of judgment. For five years, his people have been under judgment, yet still they haven't repented. I mean, how much does God need to do to get the attention of his people? How much trouble and disaster does he need to send to people before they'll be shaken up enough to listen to him? What blessings does God need to take away? What trouble and sickness and hardship does God need to bring on his people to get them to repent? Well, as we read on over the next four weeks, we see some of the things that God has in store to get the attention of his people. I don't want to spend long on it this morning, but I want to have a quick look. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 1. Before I read it, there was an article in the newspaper on Wednesday about a guy whose car broke down on the highway just out of Esperance in Western Australia. It was 2 a.m. in the morning, and uh, he couldn't get anyone to stop and help him. So he lay down in the middle of the road, pretending to be dead. This lady's driving past, she sees him, she's got two kids in the car, she's too scared to stop, so she dr drives on and calls the police. The police come back with an ambulance, he gets up and asks for help with his car. Uh, this is from the newspaper. 
Quote, police said they told the man that lying on the road was a stupid thing to do and a waste of resources, but they didn't charge him with any offence. Now, it might be crazy, but it did the job. He did get noticed. Now, God wants people to notice Ezekiel. And so what he gets Ezekiel to do is to lay down and act out his message. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then, lay siege to it. Erect siege works around it. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it and put a battering ram around it. Then take an iron pan. Place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face towards it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. What, kind of, what is God saying in this acted out message? What, what's he saying? Ezekiel's laying there, he's got a brick and he's sieging it. What's the message? That's right, Jerusalem is going to come under siege. This is not a message that it's time for the exiles to go back to Jerusalem. This is a message that Jerusalem is going to come under God's judgment too. Have a skip over to chapter 5. There's another little acted out parable there. Chapter 5 verse 1. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them withdrawn sword what's the message in that uh, little drama that's right the people in Jerusalem are under God's judgment and those who are not killed after the siege uh, he's going to chase them and scatter them with the sword this is not news that God's going to rescue the exiles what about um, come over to chapter 12 verse 3 Chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, son of man, pack your belongings for exile and in the daytime, as they watch, set out and go from where you are to another place. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. During the daytime, while they watch, bring out your belongings packed for exile. Then in the evening, while they are watching, go out like those who are in exile. What's happening there? That's right. Especially if you read on, that becomes clear. Ezekiel's actually talking uh, to the people of Jerusalem there. This is not an end of the exile to Babylon. This is another exile. More people from Jerusalem are going to have to pack their bags and go out under God's judgment. See, God wants to get Israel's attention. He has a message to deliver that's a message of judgment. And in fact, this is going to be Ezekiel's message for the next 30 chapters. 
if you read chapters 1 to 7 during the week, you would have started to feel it again and again and again. God is announcing his judgment. But right here, back in chapter 3, if you turn back to chapter 3, after Ezekiel has the vision of God, before he's given his message of judgment, God does something with Ezekiel just to teach Ezekiel the weight of what Ezekiel will have to say. Uh, in the, when we were in America, we flew from, flew from Los Angeles to New York. And I was sitting next to a guy on the plane who was carrying the final edited version of the new movie directed by the same guy who directed The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. And this guy was delivering it from Hollywood to the director. It had been edited and the director was allowed to see the final version before it goes off to production. He sat there next to it the whole flight. Never let it out of his sight. So precious was his cargo. Now, a Hollywood movie is nothing compared to the message of Ezekiel. And God wants Ezekiel to feel the weight, the responsibility of the message that he's about to deliver to Israel. And so here in chapter 3, at the start of the message, and right over in chapter 33, at the end of the message, God gives Ezekiel a warning. Have a look at chapter 3 and verse 16. Verse 15 we'll start at. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kabar River. And there, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, overwhelmed. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you, Ezekiel, accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will be saved yourself again and it goes on to talk about the same scenario but with a righteous man god has made ezekiel a watchman and the whole watchman idea gets explained a bit more over in chapter 33 when it comes up again but a watchman is like the tsunami early warning system it's meant to alert people of danger but if it doesn't go off it doesn't work See, a watchman is the person who would stand up in a tower at the city and he'd look on the horizon for danger. And when he sees the enemy coming over the hills, he would blow the trumpet to warn the people. And if the watchman did his job, if he sounded the trumpet, well then, the people are responsible to listen. If they ignore the alarm, the blood is on their own heads, is the language God uses. They are responsible. But if... If the watchman fails to sound the alarm, well then he is accountable for the blood of everyone in the city who dies. Ezekiel, you failed to deliver this message and I will hold you accountable. But of course, 
Ezekiel did tell them. Every word of it. We've got it recorded here. So who's responsible now? Israel are. If they heed Ezekiel's warning, they'll be saved. If they ignore the warning, well, there'll be no excuses when the day of judgment comes. That's the message of these first few chapters of Ezekiel. Respond to my message, Israel, and I'll save you. Ignore my message, and your blood is on your own head. And at that point, the message of Ezekiel is no different to the message of the gospel, is it? Just like Ezekiel, Jesus delivered a message to Israel. Repent, trust me, come back to me, and you'll be saved. Ignore my offer of salvation, and you'll be judged. In fact, Jesus' message of a judgment is even clearer than Ezekiel's because Jesus doesn't just lie there and act out little parables of what God's judgment looks like. Jesus actually falls under God's judgment. He wrestles with it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes it on himself on the cross. He displays for us the horror of what it is like to fall under God's judgment. And then he warns people, trust in me and you can be saved from it. Jesus, Jesus' trumpet blast of warning is so much louder than Ezekiel's. Ignore it and there'll be no excuse. So I don't know uh, where you're at this morning, but if you are here and you have heard God's call to come to Jesus, but you've not yet acted on it, hear the warning. If you ignore God's message there'll be no one to point the finger at on judgment day. No one to blame but yourself. But the whole watchman idea, um, I think, is weighty uh, for Christians too, isn't it? Especially those who have a message to proclaim. The Apostle Paul certainly felt the weight of it as a gospel preacher. Listen to uh, what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 as he's talking to the Ephesian church who he was sharing the gospel with. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He's about to get on a ship and leave them. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. See, Paul is using that Ezekiel watchman language of his own ministry. He's delivered the gospel message in all its fullness and so he is innocent of their blood. It's in their hands now. You find that same weightiness in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Or James chapter 3 where James says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. See, God wants people who teach the Bible, whether it's me preaching, whether it's you leading a small group, to feel the responsibility and the weight of the message they're carrying. Mishandle the, the gospel, you'll be called to account. Kind of makes you happy, doesn't it, just to be sitting there in the pews listening. 
well, except that when God's word comes, the responsibility is not just on the messenger, is it? There's a responsibility on the hearers. The watchman passage is two-pronged, isn't it? When the message is delivered, if you ignore it, who's responsible? So how good are you at listening to the Bible? Not just hearing, but responding. How good are you at living it out at home with your wife, with your husband, with your kids, or at work, or at school? I'm not asking are you perfect, but when your life is out of line with something that you hear in the Bible, do you repent? Do you act on what you hear? Do you go and ask people for forgiveness? Do you change your life? Or do you fail to obey it and then make excuses? I'm too busy. I forgot about it. Something else came along. God doesn't want our excuses. Once you've heard the message, there's no one else to blame. How many times have you heard a passage on a Sunday morning or on a Friday or a Wednesday night, heard it, but not acted on it. Every time we do that, we harden ourselves to the word of God. Week after week, we're warned. And I think it can almost be deceiving, can't it? We sit at Bible study in our comfortable lounge chairs, drinking our chamomile tea and our coffee, making jokes, our Bibles open on our laps. It all looks so harmless. But we are dealing with a message that if we if we trust it will bring life and if we ignore it will put us under the judgment of God how crazy would it be to hear that trumpet blowing and not do anything about it what a disaster if the watchman is there blowing his trumpet and the enemy are running over the hills and the people in the city are ignoring the call so how will you respond how will we respond to the gospel? Let's heed the call of the gospel to trust and obey Jesus. God does not speak to be ignored. God speaks to be listened to. Let's pray.